Do you like pressure? If so, you're going to love this week because global equity markets are under it. A dramatic surge in coronavirus cases throughout Europe and the U.S. are forcing more lockdowns and potential business closures. It's a huge week for corporate earnings as the mega caps prepare to report third quarter results. And the U.S. will report preliminary third quarter GDP numbers on Thursday. Prepare for a whopper. And why the VIX and implied volatility are the terms we need to know this week. Check your oxygen tanks and your deep water gear because it's time to get down with the Investopedia Express with me, Caleb Silver. Let's get into some big stories that will shape the week. $7 trillion. That's the combined market cap of Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Facebook, and Amazon. These mega caps all report third quarter results this week, and the pressure is on. But not for what they were able to do last quarter, but for what they will tell us about the future. These are the most widely held stocks among index funds, mutual funds, ETFs, hedge funds, and pension funds. And as they go, so goes the market. Consider this. The S&P 500, which is a market cap weighted index, is up 7% in 2020. The equal weighted S&P 500 is flat for the year. Size matters, especially when it comes to index investing. Questions are everywhere. Apple has a lot riding on its new iPhone 12, built for the 5G world, but will consumers buy it this holiday season? Amazon has dominated commerce on and offline, but its web services business is key to its growth, and it has showed signs of slowing. Microsoft is also trying to elbow its way into the cloud, but it's pretty competitive up there. Facebook is in the middle of the election political mess, and its trust with its billion users hangs in the balance. And Alphabet was just sued by the Department of Justice for antitrust violations, the beginning of the political battle to dismantle big tech and its influence. We'll go deep on that subject with Rana Faruhar of the Financial Times later in the program. Do you like big numbers? Well, brace for Thursday when the U.S. reports preliminary GDP numbers for the third quarter. Economists expect to see 30% growth annualized as the U.S. clawed its way out of the recession brought on by the pandemic. But remember, GDP fell 31.4% in the second quarter, the steepest drop since World War II. So we're not back to even par, especially in the labor market. U.S. Treasury bond yields have been on the rise, a sign that investors are expecting more growth in the next few quarters. That has relieved some of the pressure on fixed-income investors who have watched their yields sit below 1% for most of the year. This as equity prices have rebounded and the Federal Reserve promises to sit on interest rates at their current levels until 2023. So what's an individual investor to do? especially when they have been investing for retirement with pretty consistent returns baked into their calculations. It's the paradox facing millions of investors, and I brought that question to Joe Duran, the CEO and founder of Goldman Sachs Personal Finance Management. There's two big overarching themes. The first one is this tug of war between the fear of missing out and the fear of losing money. Almost all investment decisions are emotional in nature, and right now we're in a time where there's so much uncertainty. We now see Europe flaring again with a pandemic. We have all kinds of uncertainty around the election. And, and by the way, we've done a lot of research on this. Elections tend to create, especially close elections, much more volatility, which we're seeing. You know, we've seen a, a decline. We've seen these really big updates as well. And that turbulence makes you feel some days like I better get in. And then some days like, I can't believe I'm in, I got to get out. And the emotions are the most destructive thing you can bring to investing. We'll talk more about that in a second. 
but this is clearly a time where the, the question is, should I, a lot of people are sitting with excess cash on the sidelines. There's trillions of dollars on the sidelines that really doesn't know what it should do. And then the second overwhelming issue is we went into this year with interest rates in the two to three range, and we're now sitting at 60 to 70 basis points on a 10-year bond. And so for all the people retiring, what do I do? Because I got to get some income and sitting on the sideline, bonds are really only delivering one thing right now, which is they're an anchor and protection in a volatile market, but they're not delivering the income for, for waiting. And just a year ago, you're at least getting paid to sit on the sideline. So those two big things, should I be getting in or getting out? And what do I do to generate some yield? Those are the two big questions that are overwhelming, certainly right now for most people. Looking back in history, the 60-40 portfolio that so many people have you know, subscribed to for years, especially folks a little bit older, has delivered over time. Do you expect that to deliver over time the way it has going out the next five to 10 years? Well, for sure on the 60 part, the equity component Again, U.S. companies grow. And again, as long as you're diversified, perhaps for the next three years, it's not the tech stocks that do as well as they have. And what you'll see is a broadening out and energy stocks start to participate or financial stocks start to participate. So we see a, a broadening out because there are a lot of stocks that have not participated, the small cap stocks as an example. And they don't do well with uncertainty. So, you know, again, what I think you could see is, again, continued equity returns. And again, I'm not being bearish about tech stocks. They are phenomenal companies. And so I think what you'll see is the equity side will be fine. It is highly unlikely that you could see on the 40 end, which is the fixed income portion on a 60-40, that you could see the returns we've seen simply because what do interest rates need to do to deliver the returns we've had since 1976? In the early 80s, interest rates were in the high teens. Even a year ago, we were at three, three and a half percent on a 10-year bond. We're sitting today at 70.7. So we've had a lot of price appreciation on those underlying bonds and yield while we sat, which today you can get three times the yield that you get on a 10-year bond by buying the right stock. So that is a question that we don't know because we haven't been here before. We've never had rates this low, this long. And so again, I think what I hope we'll see is that the market recovers. You actually see a strong recovery in stocks that continue to broaden out. And the fixed income, while not generating yield, you don't get harmed too much as rates start to climb back up. But the Fed has already told us they're not increasing rates for years. It would suggest that you be careful if you have very long dated maturity bonds, that so you want to be careful about that. And what I mean by that is that where you can be harmed is if you own a mutual fund of fixed income and it has a 20-year maturity, munis have very long maturities, and interest rates pick up, the value of that underlying bond, at least nominally, will drop. And unless you own the actual bond, the turnover in a mutual fund might actually harm you because they lock in those losses. And you get a price every day. And unlike owning the actual bond where you see, well, it's pricing that way, but as long as I own it to maturity, I'll get my money back. With mutual funds, you can get a little bit more, a lot more noise, but you get the daily pricing as well. So I would suggest that's an area where I think you want to be careful. And I'm not predicting interest rates to go up, but if things go well, that you might see that on the longer dated bonds, the steepening of the yield curve, 
That'd be great for banks and financial services firms, not great for long-term debt holders, especially in mutual funds. Let's get back into sort of the behavioral aspect of things and the, and the mistakes that most investors make. It's really about time horizon and behavior. We talked about having to rethink your time horizon because you're going to probably need more money in retirement. But behavior, you mentioned, you know, the worst time to sell is when markets are, are tumbling and, and everybody is so tempted to do that. They got their finger on the sell button the whole time, but you're never going to be there for the days that it recovers the most. So why try to time it? But help us sort of navigate this concept of controlling that behavior in times of volatility and in times of, of anxiety. Well, first of all, we should realize that when you have really low interest rates, and the market's doing what they're doing, the older you get, the less what those markets do impacts you as much as your choices that you have financially. Time is no longer on your side, which means that the returns of the underlying assets, while very impactful, the choices you make about what you spend when you retire, those become much more impactful. And so a really good advisor is, working with you on the way you make life choices as well as the way you make investment choices. When you retire, whether you buy a second home, whether you send your kids to private school or not, those trade-offs are really important because they impact your life a lot more than you would think. And the variability, again, you have no control over what the markets do. You have no control about interest rates. What you have control over is, hey, what are the major timing decisions that are going to impact my saving or spending? when I retire being one of the big ones, whether I get married or not, if you have kids or not, those decisions have a huge impact, how much I give to charity. So that, that decision. Second, what you spend and save, whether you're accumulating or now at the point where you're no longer working, those choices have massive impact on your financial plan. But it's not like the Dow. You need somebody to help you understand how it works. And then third, how much do you want to leave behind at any point to the people you care about. And the reality is that's usually the one that people rethink because honestly, unearned wealth, your kids will have no problem spending the money you weren't willing to spend. And we see very often the parents being very prudent, very careful, making sure that they keep this big nest egg and then it goes to the hands of the kids who are more than happy to say, well, I'm going to take the trip to Europe that my parents never did, even exactly. though they didn't earn or do the work to get it. So again, understanding how all these things interlink is the role of a great advisor and they're all emotional decisions. But the most important thing is, look, if you're making a decision and your emotions are attached, you are almost certainly going to make a mistake. The role of a really great advisor is to help you step back and help you to see how you might have blind spots or your emotions might be clouding your decisions. That was Joe Duran, founder and CEO of Goldman Sachs Personal Finance Management. And Joe's right. This is the kind of year that financial advisors and planners thrive in. They help us get out of our own head. They help us create a financial and investing plan that is suited to our own personal needs and goals, and they help us get smart about our financial decisions. That's why we love celebrating financial advisors every year at Investopedia with our list of the 100 most influential advisors in the United States. That list drops this week, so be sure to check it out. Outside of the U.S. elections, which are sucking a lot of air out of the room, are a whole host of complicated macroeconomic issues and dynamics within industries that are shaping the decade we've just begun. 
Few people have a better handle on those than Rana Faruhar, a global business columnist for the Financial Times, a CNN contributor, and the author of several excellent books. Rana, welcome to The Express. Thanks so much for having me. I want to go global big picture with you, but I have to start right here in the U.S. with the Department of Justice recent antitrust suit against Google. Your 2019 book, Don't Be Evil, about Google and big tech basically saw this coming, right? Is this the beginning of the breakup of big tech? A hundred percent. And I would just caveat that by saying, I don't know that we're going to see a company like Google, let's say, broken up. I think what we may see is some of these giant players being turned into utilities, you know, public services in the same way that the industrial trusts of the early part of the 20th century, you know, the coal barons, steel, railroads were eventually turned into, yeah, commercial businesses. They can still make a profit, but they're highly regulated and they don't get to dominate the political economy in the way that these companies have. I was very pleased to see the DOJ case and also the House Judicial Antitrust Report, which came out the week before, starting to really focus on ideas of power, you know, because we had always been talking about price. It's all about consumer price. As long as prices are going down, there's no problem. But as I, I, as I pointed out in Don't Be Evil, my, my book on this topic, you're not really dealing with price in this world. You know, when you do a Google search, it's a barter transaction. You're getting something for free, and I put that in quotation marks, but you are giving up data and you have no idea how useful and valuable that is. Yeah, well, we like to say, if it's free, you are the product. Exactly. That's right. It's never been more true. Look, these companies argue that they help consumers. They offer marketplaces for competition. They have investors that have become very wealthy owning these stocks over the last decade or more. They also have some of the most expensive lobbying teams in the world camped out on K Street in Washington. Can they be broken up? Great question. I have to say I've been encouraged. I was doubtful when I wrote my book. I mean, I wrote it kind of as a, you know, create a core, but... I've become more hopeful in part because it's such a bipartisan issue. You know, you see Republicans and Democrats wanting big tech to be curbed for different reasons. Republicans, in some cases, because they think Silicon Valley is too liberal. They're concerned about their own propaganda being crushed uh, online. Liberals more because they care about worker issues, about privacy. But I think that all those concerns are actually going to get speeded up, as so many things have been because of COVID. You know, it's like we're going to come out of where we are. And I know we're going to talk about that, but we're going to come out of where we are in six months, a year, two years into a digital economy that we thought was going to take 10 or 15 years to create. It's going to be probably a jobless recovery. It's going to be an economy in which a lot of more jobs are going to be done by software and technology higher up the food chain. And so worries about big tech eating everyone's lunch are only going to increase. Yeah, And it's reflected in the stock market. This has been a year where we have seen the digital stay-at-home economy just explode, obviously, for a lot of reasons. So you led me there, but let's go big picture. Outside of the election, outside of the pandemic, although both are really hard to ignore right now, what macroeconomic trends were already in motion that just got accelerated even more by this? So a couple of things. I mean, one of the things I'm really paying attention to is that essentially in global markets right now, there are two bets stocks and gold. And those and there's nothing in between, really. And so what are those things telling you? Well, gold, which I got to say, I have a big stake in, in gold mining companies. Gold is telling you investors are worried about the position of the US, the fiscal position of the US, the possibility that the currency of the US is going to be eroded at some point, and that America is basically not going to be able to grow its way out of the debt that it is now taking on and has reached record heights post-COVID. Stocks are really about tech. It's about the story we've just been talking about. I mean, the last time I looked, you had 
the tech sector representing about 40, 40% and change of the S&P, but they create 16% of jobs. So there's this total mismatch between where the tech sector in particular is or where asset prices are and what's happening in the real economy. Now, can that continue? That's up to a couple of things. One is regulation. If you start to see, you know, the antitrust suit really moving ahead quickly, if you see other actions to curb the tech sector, then yeah, those valuations might get depressed. Although I still think that digital is where the future is with inequities. But the other thing is the Fed. How much more firepower is there? We have seen an, a record amount of stimulus. The Fed is buying everything but the kitchen sink over the last 10 years. They've said they're going to do more of it. But how long can that last? I think it actually just bought the kitchen sink too. the Fed balance sheet somewhere <laughs> near 7.17 trillion. It's got the sink, the guest house, the compound, and all of the property. What surprised you most in this pandemic from an economist's point of view? What is just made you just sit back and go, whoa. Interesting question. Well, I suspected even before the pandemic that real estate was due for a crash in particular commercial real estate, but boy, that has been mammoth. I think that there are entire swaths of Midtown New York, you know, some of that Chelsea Piers stuff that, that may just never come back. There's primo markets that were just overpriced and underused or not coming back. I think it's going to be interesting to see, does the work from home trend continue, but then also do incomes shift to reflect that? You hear companies like Facebook saying, sure, work from home forever, but if you're working in Iowa, you're not going to get Palo Alto salaries. How does that work? Are people really going to want to do this? I think that all of those migratory trends are fascinating. Right. I smell a book in the, in the works. <laughs> what are the biggest risks, from your point of view, to a broad-based economic recovery outside of a resurgence in the virus? Or, or is it just that? No, you know, we get rid of the virus, we can start to make real recovery here. Is it that or is there something else out there that is looming, whether it's the trade tensions or the acceleration towards the winding down of globalization? What is it out there that's on your mind? Well, you're mentioning deglobalization. I mean, that is actually the topic of my next book that I'm working on right now. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> I think that the, what foreign policy wonks called the one world, two systems problem, which is the idea that, you know, you've got the U.S. and Anglo-American style capitalism in which you've had these neoliberal ideas, to use a wonky term, you know, that, okay, goods, people, money can travel wherever it wants around the, the globe and, and just kind of land where it's most productive. Well, that was always a mythology because money can travel, goods can kind of travel, people not so much. And so what happened in the last 40 years is you had the creation of an incredible amount of private sector wealth, large corporations, um, you know, the top 10% doing very well. And then you had these hollowed out areas, not just in the Rust Belt or the south of the U.S., but all over in many rich countries. That created Trump, that created Bernie Sanders, that created the populism that we see now. We still don't have a fix for that. So I look, I mean, you know, one of the kind of corporate stories I'm thinking of right now is Qualcomm, right? Big chip maker. They became a political football in Trump's trade war with China. They do about half their business in China. They've got penalties on them from both sides now, from the U.S. and from China. Meanwhile, They've been for many years in a patent fight with Apple, which is an even bigger company that's squashing them. So step back and think about what is the future for an American multinational that is supposed to compete on the global stage with companies from China that have state support? And China is now, you know, pretty much the size in terms of both the spending and a consumer economy that the U.S. is. How are they supposed to do that? What will the new rules look like? How do we make sure that we don't go back to the 1930s? 
but that we don't have this totally laissez-faire system that breeds more populism. It is the challenge of the next generation, but it's going to be coming right to our doorstep very soon. So, hey, you don't have to worry about getting wonky with us. We're Investopedia. We can take it. We love it. And we really appreciate your time. Rana Faruhar, thanks for joining The Express. Thanks so much for having me. It's terminology time. Time for us to go deep on an investing term that you need to know this week. We asked you for your suggestions, and many of you messaged us on Instagram with your ideas. This week's terminology segment comes at the request of Shane Musgrove. Shane wants to know more about the VIX or volatility index and implied volatility. We'll give Shane the twofer, and he gets a pair of vintage Investopedia socks for his suggestion. Thanks, Shane. Let's start with the VIX or volatility index, also known as the fear index. According to Investopedia, the volatility index, or VIX, which was created by the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, is a real-time market index that represents the market's expectations of 30-day forward-looking volatility. It's derived from the price inputs of the S&P 500 index options, and it provides a measure of market risk and investor sentiment. The higher the VIX, the more volatility in the market. If more volatility is expected, the higher the VIX futures will be. It's important to know that the VIX itself is not a security like a stock or a bond. It is a measure of volatility. There's lots of securities and ETFs that allow you to bet on the direction of the VIX, but you're betting on the direction of volatility, and that can be pretty risky. As for implied volatility, Investopedia says implied volatility, or IV as the traders like to call it, is a metric that captures the market's view of the likelihood of changes in a given security's price. Investors can use IV to project future moves in a stock and employ it to price options contracts. So when you apply it to the stock market, implied volatility generally increases in bearish markets when investors believe equity prices will decline over time. IV decreases when the market is bullish and investors believe that prices will rise. Why are the VIX and implied volatility so timely this week? Well, we've got a pretty big election coming up and that generally throws a lot of fear and uncertainty into the market. The VIX is currently at around 27 or 28. That is historically very high. But back in March, when the stock market was cratering and the pandemic set in, it reached a peak of 83. So 27 feels pretty mellow. But if this was any other year, this would be front page news. We're just used to it by now. Great suggestions, Shane. And you can always go deeper on our website to learn more about volatility and implied volatility. Enjoy your socks. Well, you don't have to go home, but it's time for us to get up out of here. We'll let the legendary economist John Maynard Keynes take us out this week. Here's Keynes in a rare audio recording from 1931 talking about the benefits of taking Great Britain off of the gold standard. It's a wonderful thing for our businessmen and our manufacturers and our unemployed to taste hope again. But they must not allow anyone to put them back in the gold cage where they have been pining their hearts out all these years. Hey. No one puts baby back in the gold cage. You fly like eagles this week, and we'll talk to you again real soon. I'm Caleb Silver, and thanks for flying with us on The Express. The Express.